Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, she always catches me out with that voice. <laughs> mm. Well, comrades, uh, thank you for coming along. Um, yesterday, today is uh, our, our report back. Although I understand last week some of the comrades who were at the conference actually did take part in the discussion. So it'd be interesting if those comrades are around to make a comparison with once the dust has settled now. Well, uh, you know, in many ways, the conference went as was expected. Uh, Starmer's big speech uh, was a big speech. Uh, it was certainly big, but it was pretty vacuous, pretty thin on content. Uh, indeed, um, I I'm afraid I'm running out of superlatives to describe its emptiness and reading about it, even, even the papers and the um, journals and so on that would normally be sympathetic to Starmer's uh, sort of position were not really very enthusiastic uh, about it. Um, I, I think if we're going to understand it, we have to take it in conjunction with his magnum opus, The Road Ahead, which was um, a, uh, a document that he issued uh, in advance of the conference and um, was to sort of give uh, potential voters and supporters an idea about his politics. Um, and I have to say that that too is, uh, is pretty empty, pretty vacuous. Um, and I think it's, it's very interesting to compare Starmer's uh, lack of very developed ideas beyond a series of cliches and sound bites um, with, say, Labour leaders in the past. Even, I'd say, Labour leaders who were coming from the right always had some sort of theoretical basis. They, they, they drew on certain aspects of the Labour tradition. Uh, indeed, they emphasised that Labour tradition uh, or they, they, they referred to the Fabian tradition. Uh, Neil Kinnock drew a lot on uh, Eric Hobsbawm's forward march of Labour, halted, and some of the politics of Marxism today. And of course, Tony Blair, who um, Starmer is uh, alleged to be uh, modelling himself on, drew on the third way politics of Anthony Giddens and um, uh, communitarianism. In other words, there was something of substance there, even though it was a fairly reactionary set of politics. It was clearly based on some sort of tradition. Um, but in, in this instance, I'm afraid it was a fairly um, empty performance. And uh, it was clearly designed, I think, to, to fit in with his um, electoral strategy. Um, Starmer's advisors uh, had sort of cobbled this one together, I think, and they're drawn from the old um, Blairite school, one of his main uh, speechwriters, uh, Philip Collins, was a speechwriter for, um, for Tony Blair, and his chief of uh, strategy is uh, Deborah Mattinson, who's recently written a book on uh, why Labour lost the election, and she's a sort of guru of the focus groups. She's the sort of person who gets a group of people together, gets them to discuss certain issues, and strangely enough, they uh, come to the conclusion that people want the sort of politics that uh, Starmer has, uh, is coming up with. Um, so what was in the speech? Well, there are a number of themes and number of elements, but both in the speech and in the, um, 
and in the, the, the advanced booklet or the, the essay, the way ahead, or the road ahead, sorry. Uh, these were uh, emphasis on uh, cooperation with business, uh, a very modified form of uh, capitalist reformism, uh, cooperation with the, uh, with the state, with the status quo, and in particular, a number of sort of key trigger messages. For example, crime, labor would be cracked down hard on crime. This is where Starmer refers to his, um, his previous uh, role as uh, DPP. And also emphasis on security, security in the sense of security uh, for voters in terms of their work and their place in society, but also in terms of an uncertain world. And this is where we got very much the ideas of patriotism. Labour was a patriotic party. Labour wasn't afraid to defend the armed forces. In other words, this was a speech tailor-made for the, um, the, the type of voters, it was alleged, that Labour had lost in uh, the last general election. Very much working on the idea that large numbers of working class voters who abandoned Labour were um, patriotic, that they were turned off by uh, Jeremy Corbyn's pacifism, his uh, sense of uh, maybe betrayal of British interests. Those sorts of you know, fairly reactionary, socially conservative views all were in here. And of course, the idea of the contribution society, which was, was meant to be the big idea in which everybody plays their part and is then justly rewarded. So very much a reformist idea of leaving the social and economic order intact, um, but, but making sure that everybody played their part and did the right thing. Um, we even had the reappearance of our old friends, the hardworking families, um, and they, they've got to look in again. Presumably these are the people who uh, you know, work hard or are struggling and... Um, who you know, Labour hopes to uh, uh, appeal to in that way. So it was very much sort of Blairism. And I suppose the big question for us in both the political and the economic sense is whether that's going to work. Uh, after all, it worked in the 1990s. And um, you, know, you, you can easily see how with a, a, a group of Blairite advisors around him, uh, Sakia thinks that it's possible to repeat the trick again. But I suppose it's a bit like all revival acts. You know, a lot of people go along to see a Beatles tribute band because, well, they like to remember the good times. But if you look in the charts, I'm afraid the Beatles uh, and uh, bands of their ilk aren't there anymore. There are other types of music people have moved on. Um, it's not a musical discussion, but I suppose the point I'm making is that what's happening here is that just merely to repeat the words and the phrases of the 1990s in a very different world isn't, I think, going to cut it electorally. And indeed, what's interesting, um, when we look at uh, the poll ratings uh, in, the, in, the, in the few days afterwards, is that uh, Keir Starmer was in fact unable to shift up. If anything, the gap between Labour and the Tories has remained. And indeed, um, Keir Starmer's own approval ratings are still in minus figures. So we have the situation then in which a Tory government, which is facing no end of crises, both self-inflicted and in, in the wider sense, is still, still has a poll lead and in which Labour has not uh, convincingly established um, its position. 
So from that point of view, uh, the start the, the Starmer strategy doesn't look to be that successful. But I think there's also something else about its failure, and that is that really British politics have really radically changed, and indeed the world has radically changed since the 1990s. First of all, we've um, we've got Starmer, the arch uh, Remainer, who's um, you know was very clearly identified with the Remain cause, even down to the level of a second referendum. And in many senses, as we heard when someone heckled him at the conference, was blamed for uh, losing Brexit voters for Labour. Um, we've also got um, really the, um, the whole sort of shift in world politics, the rise of China, the tensions between the United States and China, and indeed uh, foreign policy as well. Uh, the AUKUS uh, agreement between uh, the United States, Australia and Britain. And that sort of feel good, positive uh, set of vibes. Uh, things can only get better, we were told, under Labour in the 1990s. We're definitely in a much more insecure world in which uh, the possibilities of conflict and indeed of major crises really loom on the horizon. And whether Starmer's uh, Blair tribute band um, approach is really going to work, I think has to be, um, you know, really put into, uh, into question. We're also in a, a different world economically. Um, the 1990s were a period of economic growth and um, the economy was quite buoyant. And on the basis of that, um, you know, people felt that, that, that Blair might offer them something new. Starmer is in a is, uh, is operating in a world of slumps of economic crisis, and a sort of steady as she goes policy doesn't really, I think, cut it. So that, for example, on on, on energy prices and on uh, issues of uh, public ownership of um, uh, utilities uh, and the the fifteen uh, pounds an hour. Um, uh, minimum wage that was being proposed by many in the party, his agnosticism and indeed opposition to that, I think don't even even in terms of electropolis don't really uh, don't really answer that. I suppose above all the the type of uh, Blairite economic strategy which depended upon uh, fairly heavy taxation of uh, of the city of a booming financial economy. Um, that again isn't, I think, going to wash. Again, it's it's going to uh, you know prove to be very difficult. So the positive dynamics that Blair had, we um, we can't really see uh, being present for uh, for Keir Starmer. Um, so it looks, I think, in, at the in the initial run that uh, that, that Starmer's uh, gamble in terms of the speech, in terms of his his pitch is really open to question uh, in that way. But of course, he wasn't just uh, appealing to the electorate. Um, he was also appealing to a much more important audience for a leader of the opposition and a potential prime minister. And that was the ruling class in Britain. He was more or less saying to them, as he said really since his election, I'm a safe pair of hands, I'm reliable that the dangerous experiments of Corbynism, particularly the threat to um, Britain's uh, alliances, its relationship with NATO and the rest of the 
the, the major capitalist countries, that, um, th you know, that threat has gone. No more wild experiments, no more flirting with the uh, Palestinian rights. Above all, no more flirting with any sort of really serious intervention in the economy. Um, you know, Corbyn's policy wasn't particularly radical. It was for managed capitalism at best. And in many ways, it was a fairly moderate uh, programme. But, but Starmer's even rode back on that. The other, um, the other audience for his speech wasn't just the British ruling class, but of course it was uh, the, the, the American ruling class, the dominant international ruling class. And again, they were very concerned about the, um, about the future direction of the British Labour Party. But Starmer has reassured everybody, he's brought everybody back into line, and Labour is now being groomed as the reliable second 11. So normal, normal business resumes, no more radicalism, a safe pair of hands. And if the ruling class feels it necessary to switch and to back Labour, um, then it, it's not a risk in the same way that was the case uh, under Corbyn. Um, however, I suppose if we're thinking about the, about the perspectives from the conference, is how far Starmer can, uh, in a sense, pull Labour back as an electoral force. I've mentioned the opinion polls, and I've also mentioned some of the theories that exist in the right about why Labour has gone, in, gone into decline. Um, in the various journals associated with, with that wing of the Labour Party, um, the um, journals like The Guardian, The New Statesman, uh, prospect and so forth. Um, a lot of argument about the historical decline of labour and about the need to develop a patriotic appeal to the, the so-called um, red wall seats, a type of politics of blue labour. Um, that decline has, has gone on for quite a number of years. And um, although Peter Mandelson, who's also involved behind the scenes with Keir Starmer, would like us to believe that, um, that the defeat in 2019 was solely uh, uh, attributable to um, Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity. We might also consider that Labour votes, uh, and particularly Labour majorities in many of their safe seats, have been falling as well. And the big dips occurred in the 2000s. Indeed, uh, as, as many people on the left point out, Jeremy Corbyn actually gained more votes for Labour uh, than in, uh, in some of the elections in the 2000s. And this sort of much vaunted three victories in a row were often on much reduced votes. And that I think does pose for many people, and it's, it's certainly raised on the left, of the possibilities of Labour uh, going into some sort of long-term decline, uh, the you know the writing on the wall in Scotland, and indeed in parts of the country which have been safe Labour seats for generations, all seem to pose, I think, some sort of threat. So this sort of mood, uh, I think, was 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 quite uh, was quite evident, and has has been quite evident in the uh, in the Labour movement for a while. Um. Does Starmer have uh, a, um, a sort of long-term 
strategy? What are the prospects? What prospects does it have for remaining leader uh, for any appreciable time? There's been, I think, some discussion of this. What was very interesting for me being present at the conference as a, as a visitor was to compare what I was reading in the newspapers and seeing on the television with what I witnessed in my own, with my own eyes. And in that sense, it's very clear that a number of um, Starmer's colleagues have you know, certainly got their eye on the top job. The, the little spat with uh, Angela Rayner, the Tory press seem actually quite obsessed with her, um, in, you know, and, and really big this, this question up. But also um, the way that uh, a number of uh, Blairite politicians like Andy Burnham, remember Burnham was in Bear's cabinet, and although he's distanced himself from that now, he's very much part of that scene. But also Dan Jarvis, a Labour MP in, uh, in Yorkshire and uh, a Metro mayor, or shortly I think will end that role. Rachel Reeves, West Streeting, all of them were sort of said to be on manoeuvres, parading themselves around as potential uh, alternatives. And so Sama was not only, I think, uh, appealing to the electoral audience, he was not only trying to reassure the ruling class, but in some ways he was trying to hold this rather sort of disparate right-wing group together. But of course, we are in a period of some great instability and uncertainties. And um, as we know from elections and from politics in the last few years, any number of surprises can occur. And indeed, in the conference itself, there were a number of surprising uh, developments. And um, again, the contrast between uh, the way the, the conference was reported and the, the, what was happening on the ground, as it were, in the conference uh, floor, was, I think, very interesting. And that contrast was particularly the way that what, what the political spinmeisters describe as the narrative, as the optics. There was a narrative here that Starman was, was clearly in control. The optics were of a popular leader, someone who'd seen off the left and was now firmly in control of his party, that had really taken on the left. And indeed, the reception that his speech got with a, you know, a number of heckles and uh, demonstrations and so forth, although those demonstrations were quite significant and much larger, I think, than many people you know, had, had expected, they still, uh, certainly the projection of them, uh, both in the, in the television and the newspapers, was that Starmer had seen off the hecklers. Indeed, he, he prepared for that. What was quite interesting to comrades who were actually there was that he prepared for a couple of heckles, but then had actually run out of steam. And um, indeed, his, his responses got rather lamer and lamer. So he probably expected three or four heckles, not the, the round of heckling. And he certainly didn't expect, uh, you know, much of the response that he got. So I think that um, this, uh, this shows, again, the degree that, that within the conference, there was a degree of opposition, and that some of the um, some of the arguments about the left having been seen off, um, you know, not always accurate. If we look very closely at many of the conference votes, um, they often 
gave Starmer a majority of around about 60 to 40. They varied, and indeed on a number of um, quite significant issues, um, the, uh, the left managed to win. Uh, notable victories were on the, um, uh, the, 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 the resolution uh, condemning Israel as an apartheid state, uh, on condemnation of the AUKUS deal, the that new alliance with the United States and Australia, and um, and also on the um, uh, on aspects of the Green New Deal and the economy. But of course, uh, Starmer can sort of ride pretty well roughshod over that, even even when the um, the the resolution in Israel was passed passed by acclamation, not put to a card vote or even a show of hands, really. Um, Lisa Nandy said, well, you know, we can more or less ignore this and Starmer likewise. So although these represent, you know, signs that in the, in the, in the conference the left was still active, what it wasn't in a position to do was really to bring Starmer to heel. And on many occasions, Starmer was saved by uh, the, the trade union bloc votes of a particular uh, number of unions, the, the GMB, uh, the Unison delegation, and Usdor, all in sense could be wheeled out um, to to vote for him. These right wing unions still still see Labour as a uh, you know a means of obtaining some concessions for their members, and they still have hopes the Labour government will. Um, you know, will be able to deliver those. So they're, they're sort of fairly firmly behind Starmer. But in the constituencies sections and in some of the other left unions, um, it's very clear that there's a, still a degree of opposition. For me, the interesting thing was the, uh, was the nature of that left wing. And um, this, I think, shows really the, the current state of the Labour left. And although... Um, the Labour left was not as badly uh, seen off as many people had feared. Um, it was very clear that it was in a weakened situation. It's also clear that since the uh, um, general election, that Labour has lost uh, maybe 150,000 members. Figures are really thrown around in, in general. It's very hard to get hard and fast evidence but a number of constituencies didn't send delegates. And indeed, in my experience, uh, some constituencies are now losing up to a third uh, of their members, maybe even more. Meetings are in quarret, and indeed there's a sort of a, an air of demoralization um, setting in amongst people. So although the, there was a, you know, a, a clear fight back, and indeed there were some excellent um, speeches uh, uh, in the conference, uh, it was it was clear that when it mattered, that Starmer had the votes in his pocket, and this I think is uh, is is evident in two two areas. One were the constitutional changes, which would make it much more difficult for uh, a leadership candidate to stand. Also, changes which uh, even further entrenched um, MPs. In their uh, in their seats and made them even less uh, likely to be removed or democratically accountable to their uh, constituency parties, 
But probably the, the, the major blow was the um, uh, acceptance of the disciplinary procedure, uh, which more or less brought in uh, the whole uh, arguments of the EHRC uh, report and handed disciplinary matters over to an independent panel. Indeed, comrades uh, who are there will perhaps tell you that the whole mood uh, at the conference when those measures were discussed uh, was, was, very, um, was very subdued. And indeed, uh, one comrade described it as, as, if, the as if the conference was um, getting, you know, performing a collective act of penance and that everybody, in a sense, had bought into this narrative about the party needed to have independent scrutiny of its disciplinary procedures, and that that might mean that uh, you know, actively hostile groups, such as the Board of Deputies of British Jews, might be involved in, um, in internal party disciplinary matters. So that, uh, that really did represent something of a defeat for the left. The, there were, apart from those areas that I've mentioned, that were victories for the left, but as I've said, these are, in many senses, Pyrrhic victories. Starmer's um, uh, sort of setback early in the week, um, when he floated those um, ideas of changes to um, the uh, election structure, re reintroduction of the Electoral College, a reintroduction of the Electoral College, um, which would um, you know, apparently or allegedly uh, reduce the influence of the left. That, um, that was seen off by the unions. It's, um, it's unclear you know, how far this was um, a, a, a case of bad tactics by Starmer. Um, floating something only a few days before the conference. And indeed, whether there was some sort of tactical nous lurking behind this. Um, for those of you who play chess or study military history, some blunders can often appear to be very deep tactics. Uh, and um, you always have to look at an apparent mistake, I think, uh, twice. But uh, it, it does seem to me again that, uh, that this was an example where Starmer was trying to, you know, maybe again repeat something from the Blair playbook and that it was all designed to be a demonstration of his authority and maybe to um, go for that Blairite tactic of trying to win uh, wider support by going on the offensive against his own party uh, in that way. Likewise, um, his success in getting David Evans um, appointed as General Secretary <coughs> was, uh, again, another example of um, his, uh, his strength. But also, again, as comrades who were there will tell you, it was also an example of some of the most blatant uh, manipulation, gerrymandering, uh, playing around with the rule book, or simply ignoring uh, the normal rules and procedures. So the, the conference majorities that Starman got were, um, were not, uh, I think, um, were not simply this sort of massive onslaught by the right. Indeed, in some senses, uh, you know, the left did 
did maintain a link. But what I think is very much missing uh, from the left is, is really any sense of direction. And this, I think, is what we need to consider in our discussions and really where Labour is going to go from here. We're definitely, I think, in the post-Corbyn era. Um, some comrades on the left are still hoping that Jeremy Corbyn will do something. You know, rather like Jacobites meeting in their um, secret rooms and toasting the king across the water. Um, the argument is that um, that Jeremy might be the catalyst for something. Quite what that something is, I think, is unclear. And this, to me, is really the weakness and the problem of the Labour left. This is not really a question of the personalities of the individuals concerned. It's not even about the record of people like Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell when they were in the leadership position and when they really stood idly by as comrades were expelled, witch hunted, or when they really failed to take the fight to the right. When, for example, there were the various attacks upon Corbyn, they didn't launch a purge of the PLP. They didn't encourage the constituencies to deselect these people. They just simply stood by and in a way were rather passive about the whole thing. So I, I think we need to consider what that tells us about the Labour left. And I, again, I don't think these are sort of moral defects. They are, I think, political weaknesses. And indeed they come from the politics of the Labour left and their key focus, which is on the election of a Labour government. Now, comrades on the Labour left have a variety of positions, um, but I think the central position they all have is it's necessary to elect a Labour government. Uh, any Labour government is better than a Tory government. And indeed, for many of them, the idea that socialism will develop incrementally through a series of left Labour governments is absolutely central. So that means that the Labour Party must be kept intact and that it does in of necessity mean a, a set of concessions, set of compromises with the Labour right. Um, the left always sees itself as weak. It always sees itself as relatively unable to shape events. And so it's necessary always to compromise, to maintain the structure of the Labour Party uh, in order to achieve that. And of course, we've seen We've seen really that the, the, the Corbyn movement uh, has, has generally either receded with many people uh, simply leaving the party when faced with, with the defeat of the election and the failure of that project. They didn't really have a, a perspective other than getting Corbyn into power and then expecting that Corbyn would you know, do it all for them. Um, you know, the politics of the saviour from on high. And those politics are never going to work. Um, you know, that our conception of politics, our conception of socialism as a movement that's based on the self-activity and the self-emancipation of the working class, do not rely upon that sort of uh, Führerprinship. It doesn't rely upon leadership. It relies upon a very clear strategic movement. Also, many people on the left, many people who were formerly on the left, 
have in a sense come to terms with the new order. Many uh, people who came into the party have either settled down for uh, a, a new career. Many of the, um, the momentum enthusiasts have um, managed to uh, link their own personal careers to what they see as political principle. They work as advisors to MPs. Um, they're uh, aspiring councillors. Some of them are on the lookout for seats. And so, in a way, they've become part of the, uh, the Labour bureaucracy. And if they haven't really joined that Labour bureaucracy, they have really come to terms with it. Others, perhaps more principled, but not, I think, really particularly very strategic, are simply holding on, digging in, um, you know, getting into the shell holes and just hoping that this will all pass over and that they will then be in a position at some future date to regain control over the party. They're waiting for better times ahead. Um, they, you know, they take comfort that they, they're holding on. And um, of course, that sort of policy often goes alongside a fairly um, sort of quietist policy towards fighting bans and prescriptions, you know, taking on the witch hunters. And of course, they will, you know, preserve themselves for another day, but they will only do that, I think, in the hope that Labour is the only show in town. Quite what they're going to do with Labour, um, they don't really seem to know. One of the problems, I think, with the defeat of Corbyn and therefore the defeat of his movement was that Corbyn himself was, in a sense, the central figure. Um, Corbynism, I think, was a very interesting phenomenon, and it, it still, as I say, has a certain resonance. But Corbyn, as a politician, was a uh, was a person, uh, you know, rather like an empty glass to whom you could pour all sorts of content. Corbyn was the authentic voice of politics. He was principled. He's very much the outsider. You know, he'd spent years on the back benches promoting unpopular causes. Um, you know, even, even people who uh, thought of him as maybe a bit too left-wing in the PLP did admire his tenacity on certain subjects. So in that way, he carried that aura of principle. It's really a very long way from the rather machine-slick politics. But of course, Corbyn's own uh, strategy was, I think, really seriously flawed. And even leaving aside his strategy for socialism, which, as I've said, was really very little more than a, a form of managed capitalism of, of some alleviations of the worst excesses. Um, and, and, and that in a period when I think it's very difficult for capitalism to give those sorts of concessions. But his, his strategy for achieving that, you know, there will be many comrades on the left who um, will have many experiences of being under attack during the Corbyn years and of making direct links, you know, in, in some cases in my own Labour Party, people appealing directly to the leadership. They had personal contacts with people like John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. And in a sense, uh, just simply being abandoned. And indeed, in many cases, Comrades were simply thrown under the bus uh, in that way. And that, I think, is, 
is not only unprincipled, but it was just strategically inept that simply to uh, placate the right wing and hope that that would um, buy you time wasn't going to work. So, so any movement that's focused on Corbyn, and I, I think again, we, we, we all know the way that the momentum movement did that. Any movement that's focused on Corbyn with his departure from the scene, is likely to disintegrate. Who are the runners and riders from the left for any leadership challenge? Who indeed are the runners and riders for any form of real uh, fight back on the left? And we can name maybe a handful of people. Um, Richard Bergen made a very good speech at the uh, Socialist Campaign Group rally, well-known, writes in the Morning Star. Uh, John Trickett, likewise, starting to gain that sort of reputation. And um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Andy McDonald, who's not a member of the campaign group, I think, um, didn't start to uh, you know, make some running as well following his resignation. But I think the other sort of moves that we have now on the Labour left are ideas of turning our back on Labour particularly after that speech and after that conference and building some sort of new party, some sort of new movement. And we've heard all sorts of arguments about that. Uh, Ken Loach um, has, has called for a new movement that might uh, encompass people both inside the Labour Party and, and outside of it. We know that large numbers of people have left the Labour Party and that indeed many people are now becoming more interested, more involved in uh, protest politics. Uh, there are demonstrations today on outside the Tory party conference. And it's also very likely that um, in the coming months there will be uh, trade union struggles. Workers in a period of inflation will attempt to recoup some of their wages. And of course, with labour shortages, <coughs> workers will want to make up for all the attacks that have been had on them really for decades now. So there will be other fronts opening up. Uh, but what is the perspective for these sorts of movements? What form could they take? Well, some comrades are talking about a new specifically socialist party. You know, I'm in favour of a, a party with a clear revolutionary socialist programme. I'm a Marxist, and after all, that's what I want. But many of the programmes and many of the arguments that are being put forward are often fairly broad. They're often only united by the lowest common denominator of opposition to Starmer. And indeed, on quite fundamental questions, they... Um, they still, in a, in a sense, accept the ideas of laborism, of focusing on elections, of getting into government, of taking control of the state machine. So this focus on electoralism, I think, will be a, a, a weakness. And likewise, um, some comrades uh, believe that the Labour Party should, in a sense, be uh, reclaimed, should be rebuilt. So uh, a new Labour Party mark too. 
a, a Labour Party that might, for example, include some of the unions that have disaffiliated, RMT, Bakers who've just uh, disaffiliated, linked in with socialist activists, and that again could be the basis uh, for uh, a new working class movement. But of course, the weakness of many of these is the focus on uh, participation in uh, the capitalist state, and indeed the belief that um, that elections, you know, are the central focus, the, the and electoralism and the formation of the government. And uh, as Marxists, we, we we don't accept that it's possible to achieve socialism in that way. Um, that that simply a series of Labour governments or a series of left governments are going to be allowed to carry out the sort of social change, but also that our, our conceptions of socialism uh, really revolve around the mass um, involvement and the mass political mobilization of the working class as a whole. So the, 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 any new parties that are likely to emerge, I think are likely to sort of go the way of many of the previous attempts to form a party outside of Labour. Uh, Respect is an example, uh, Arthur Scargill's Socialist Labour Party, Scottish Socialist Party. You know, there are any number of projects like this. And I'm not at all confident that any of the ideas that are currently being floated are likely to take us very much further. Um, the... Um, the problem then for, for Marxists and for socialists in and around the Labour Party is what sort of demands and what sort of programme to advance. In any, uh, any number of discussions that take place, uh, the comrades from LPM, Labour Party Marxists, put forward two sets of demands. <coughs> Pardon me. One of our central demands is not the idea of reclaiming labor. Labor, after all, has always been what Lenin described as a bourgeois workers' party. It's always been a contradictory party. It's always had its starmers. It's always had its members of the establishment at the top. It's always had its trade union bureaucrats. So from at least since the First World War, when labor went into coalition and uh, Arthur Henderson sat in a cabinet which um, uh, ordered the execution of Irish Revolutionary Socialist James Connolly. It has been firmly on the side of the capitalist class. And indeed, in, in, it's very clear that someone like Starmer is actually a part of that ruling class, uh, despite his constant references to his toolmaker father. Uh, his own individual position is not what counts. It's actually his social role and the fact that he's an in an integral part of that state, that part of that legal uh, establishment. But of course, Labour is also uh, a working class party. It has its roots in the trade unions. And of course, for many people, particularly when they first become involved or become interested in what they think of as socialism, the Labour Party will be an arena for them. So it's still rooted in the working class. And as such, it still remains an arena for socialists and for Marxists to struggle for their politics to win support. But, but Labour in and of itself, given this, this, this historical contradiction and given its function, can never, I think, become 
the Revolutionary Party. It can never generate within and of itself uh, that type of politics. It can never develop that, that revolutionary program organically. For that to occur, there does need to be a party external to Labour. And that, I would argue, is a Marxist party with a very clear Marxist program. So our, our demands are not for the reclaiming of the Labour Party, but for its re-foundation as a united front of the special kind of uh, a party that goes back to its origins as a movement that includes all socialist and working class tendencies. In other words, that it's an arena in which we can build uh, the, uh, the revolutionary movement, not seeing Labour as it's constituted as an instrument, but seeing it as an arena in which, uh, in which we can fight and build that sort of project. Unless we are looking at that sort of party, unless we're looking at that sort of project, then I think that um, turning our backs on Labour um, is, a, is a mistake. Labour is still has a very important place in the British working class movement. We can't ignore it. But neither can we simply argue that we stay on in Labour and just keep our heads down. We have to fight for our politics, but we also have to fight for a wider strategy and a wider political programme. And it seems to me that many people on the left, uh, although they're asking these questions, have yet really to um, uh, arrive at, uh, at, at those sorts of conclusions. In the next few weeks, next few months, I'm sure that comrades who were on the, the Labour left will be discussing these things. There are two or three meetings in the next few days, and uh, we'd urge comrades to go along to them, take part in the discussions, but to do so with a very clear strategy and a very clear understanding about the nature of the Labour Party, but also to understand the history of that party and to understand the history of projects that have been designed to um, create a new party outside of, of the Labour Party. Not to repeat the mistakes of the past, but to go for a very clear strategy and for a very clear Marxist programme. Uh, okay, comrades, I'll, I'll leave it there and we can uh, then begin the discussion.